Welcome back to another episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm Rob Walling. Today, I sit down with Jeff Roberts, co-founder of Outseta. He wrote a 4,400-word article on global sales tax remittance, and I joke with him in today's conversation about how it's one of the most boring topics, but it's something that people should be aware of. And that's why I titled this episode, As a SaaS Founder, When Should You Care About Sales Tax? Because the answer is likely not on day one, but there does come a point when you need to start thinking about sales tax, not only within your own country, but globally. And that's what Jeff and I dig into today. He's done a ton of research on this topic. We define merchant of record. We talk about when you might want to be your own versus using a third party, the pros and cons. And we hear a little bit about Jeff's own story as a founder of Outseta. Before we dive into that, MicroConf Mastermind Matching starts in just a week or two. Our applications open on May 3rd. And we've had incredible success connecting nearly 1,000 founders around the world over the last three years with approaching $200 million in combined ARR. We have founders in the idea stage all the way up to making millions, low eight figures, literally $10 million a year. So whatever stage you're at, if you've ever wanted to be connected with a small group of other like-minded founders who are likely at your stage or maybe just a little ahead of you for support and guidance and accountability, head to microconf.com slash masterminds to learn more and to get matched. Applications open May 3rd, they close on May 12th, and we send matches by May 17th. We only do matches two, maybe three times a year, and every time we do it, we have someone approach us after the applications close and beg to get in, and unfortunately, we can't do that. So make sure, if you want to be matched in a mastermind, that you hit microconf.com slash masterminds before May 12th. And with that, let's dive into my conversation. Jeff Roberts, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Rob. It's great to have you on, man. I'm looking forward to hanging out next week, or by the time this goes live, I think it'll be last week at uh, MicroConf US in Denver. But today, we're going to talk about one of the most boring topics that I can think of, but we're going to make it interesting. <laughs> right? I recorded a YouTube video a couple weeks ago about SOC 2 compliance, and I started it by saying, yeah, you think this is going to be boring, but it's really important, but so is global <laughs> sales tax compliance and remittance. You wrote this article on your company blog, so you're a startup founder at outseta.com, and it's all-in-one membership software. But you've obviously had to deal with some global sales tax compliance and remittance because you wrote this article subheading, what I've learned over the last 18 months about when to use a third-party merchant of record versus when to act on your own. So first question is, hey, why is this so important? Like, Why should people listen to this episode and learn about it? Yeah, I think the reason it's important is it is an obligation for any SaaS founder to figure out what they need to do around global sales tax uh, compliance and remittance. Uh, and more importantly, nobody understands it. Uh, <laughs> it is completely confusing. Everybody that I've spoken to, even people that think they understand this subject well, don't understand it 100%, myself included. And it really came to the forefront for us because we are a SaaS company ourselves. We need to figure this out as, as a business ourselves, but we are a billing system. We do process payments and we need to productize a solution to this problem for our customers. And we spent the better part of 18 months evaluating every option on the market from using a third-party merchant of record to all of the different tax software products that are out there 
And during this 18 month period, we had customers kind of asking us for, for solutions and asking us for solutions and asking us for solutions. And I felt guilty. I was like, we're a billing system. We need to have a good answer to this problem. But the conclusion that I've come to after spending so much time thinking about this is there really isn't a good solution to this problem today. So it's kind of a pick your poison scenario. And that's what the, the article I wrote is all about. And if I'm a startup founder running a bootstrap business doing 10 grand a month, 20 grand a month, can I just ignore all of this? Like, do I need to pay attention? Or, or does, I, I guess what I'm asking is, does it only hit you at scale? Like, what, what is the downside? And when do you think it, it becomes important? Yeah, so I would say, first of all, like the, the legal advice that anyone would give you is there are different revenue thresholds in each country after which you need to worry about this. Some of them are when you process your very first payment in a given country. Others are hundreds of thousands of dollars of payments processed. So the technical legal answer is it kind of depends. That being said, I think that you really don't need to worry about this, particularly on your way to 10K in MRR. I think it's much like all other aspects of, of building a startup. You need to sort of create good problems. And I would turn my attention to this personally, probably somewhere between 500K and a million dollars a year in revenue. I think that's a point where you will be processing enough payments that you'll have sort of a significant tax obligation in a number of jurisdictions that warrants actually figuring this all out. Before that, I, I think um, it's honestly not something you need to worry about too much. And I should caveat this whole conversation with neither you or I are lawyers, we're not accountants, we're not legal nor tax advice. These are just opinions of two people on the internet who happen to have read some stuff, right? I mean, this, For is, sure. this is it. So, but no, I agree with you. So when I was growing my startups, it was always, it's like, I don't need insurance early on. I didn't have an LLC for a long time because I was a sole proprietor until I hit about 70, 80K a year. You know, there were just certain moments where it's like, of course, it's risk tolerance. Of course, if you talk to the most strict lawyer, then they will say, do all this stuff up front. And it's like, well, that's all my, that's all, 20 grand in fees and I don't have a business yet, right? So it's like, you have to take this with a grain of salt. In terms of, of this post or this essay, which is a 19 minute read, you have at the top, which is like a warning, like, hold, slow down. Yeah, if you really want to do it, do it. But otherwise, you know, it's global sales tax. So is this about country to country stuff? Or does this apply? Let's say I'm in the US, there are 50 states, there's different counties have different sales tax, all that. Do you address any of that in this post? Yeah, it's, it's all discussed in this post. Uh, basically, at this point, you probably have a tax obligation in any country where you have a customer, at least to some extent, including your own country. But the part that is really crazy about this topic to me is these are not taxes that your business owes. These are taxes that your customers owe. And it is you, the small business owner, who is supposed to keep track of all this stuff and remit taxes on behalf of all of those customers. The whole system is kind of kind of crazy, uh, if, if you ask me. And one of the realizations that I came to in writing this post is just the frequency in which the actual tax rates and tax laws change even within your own country. So within the United States in 2021, there were 600 plus different tax rate changes that went into effect that year. And to get, just keep track of that within your own country, let alone every country in the world, every municipality in the world is kind of ridiculous. And even the companies that do this full time, like that's what their products are based around. The idea that you would ever be fully in compliant at any point in time is sort of a ridiculous notion in and of itself. 
Yeah. And is does this apply only, you know, obviously without Seta, you are a membership website platform. And so I could go set up a membership website for microconf, for example, and then I, w- I could charge folks in microconf to pay a membership fee. In essence, money would be flowing throughout Seta to me. And that's when this is becomes more complicated. Is that right? Because I'm imagining, let's say I had an email service provider like Drip or MailChimp, you know, my customers are not charging their customers for anything. They're just paying me money. How, do, how is that, you know, maybe more or less complex than the situation you're dealing with? I think the only thing that is, is more complex is we have to pay taxes ourselves as a company, uh, but we provide tools to our customers to do the same thing. Um, that, that's the only additional level of complexity here. But within our customer base, we have hundreds of companies that are looking to us and saying, what is this global sales tax remittance stuff? Do I need to worry about this? When do I need to worry about this? Is Outset a merchant of record? Can it be a merchant of record? Do you integrate with other tax software products? So we've just been barraged with these questions and we're trying to provide some clear-cut advice to our customers so they can sort of wade through the scenario that they find themselves in and have a workable solution. So that begs the question, can you define what a merchant of record is? Yes. Uh, A merchant of record is who you are actually interacting with if you're processing credit and debit card payments. It's the person or the the organizations that's going to show up on your bank statement. It's the person that is sort of liable for those transactions. So most SaaS companies today, ourselves included, will use Stripe for payment processing. They set up their own what's called merchant account with Stripe, and they are basically responsible for all of the transactions processed through Stripe on behalf of their business. If that's the case, that means you do need to be applying tax to your invoices and remitting tax in all these different jurisdictions where you do business. But a third-party merchant of record is a newer option uh, that's become quite popular. The popular merchant of record products out there today are, are Paddle, Lemon Squeezy, Gumroad, those sorts of customers where essentially they create one master merchant of record account for all of their customers, and they're actually processing payments on behalf of your business. Your customers aren't interacting with your business in that case, they're interacting with the merchant of record, and the merchant of record then sort of issues a payout to your company after they've remitted all the taxes that are required. So there's sort of this perception that if you use a third-party merchant of record, your problems are just solved. And to some extent, that is true. You don't need to think to the same level about global sales tax remittance and compliance because the merchant of record is doing it for you. But there are downsides ranging from higher payment processing fees to platform risk that you need to consider. So I don't think one is a clear-cut better option, frankly. Got it. And at Outseta, are you a merchant of record? We are not a merchant of record. Part of this post was me just kind of being honest with our customer base saying, we've been thinking about this for 18 months. We still don't have a great solution to this problem. And I think the article, I I hope I sort of bring some credibility to the discussion because we're not trying to sell you anything. We don't have a great solution at this point in time. But where we've landed as a company is we want to offer both options. Um, I think most SaaS businesses will probably opt towards continuing to use Stripe. And I know for a fact, since publishing this article, there is a huge influx of remittance-related products and services that are being built right now that aim to make this whole process easier for companies that do use Stripe. But we also sell to a lot of more creator-focused businesses, 
where I think a merchant of record maybe does make more sense for them. And we are looking for a viable partner to offer a merchant of record solution ourselves to. I imagine it's pretty complicated to be a merchant of record. It is. It's a, a lot of administrative work. I mean, you look at the companies that have have done this. Paddle's raised $300 million in funding, uh, largely because they need to figure out how to do all this on behalf of their, their customer base. And I think it's even telling that Stripe has not prioritized their own merchant of record solution, at least at this point. I suspect they will at some point, uh, but there's just a lot that that goes into it, frankly. So it would be really hard for a small business like Outsetta to become a merchant of record ourselves. Yeah, I would imagine. Are you Is Outsetta bootstrapped or have you raised funding? We are. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that would make it especially difficult. I remember back in the day, Gumroad raised money. They raised like 7 million bucks in whatever the year is, 2013, 2014. And their head of growth, Ryan Delk, came and spoke at MicroConf. And I asked him, why didn't Gumroad bootstrap was number one. And then why did they raise so much money? Because it just seemed like a big amount for what they were doing. The software wasn't that complicated. I I just didn't get it. And I'm not anti-funding, but raising half a million dollars makes total sense. But raising 7 million was like, what is happening? And he said one of the reasons was that they needed to become their own. The way he said it was credit card processor, payment processor, but I think it really was merchant of record. Absolutely. And And in order to do that, you need to work directly with banks in a fashion where they need to have confidence in you, in your company, and they need to trust you, right? The company. And that was one signal they could say, well, we raised this much money from these top tier VCs. I think you'd have a pretty challenging time. Maybe today it's a little easier, but I think, you know, becoming a merchant of record when you're just a little bootstrap company no one's heard of, I think could be challenging. Absolutely. Yeah. I think the path for us would be an integration with a paddle, a lemon squeezy, et cetera, you know, those those platforms charge pretty high payment processing fees for being a merchant of record. And that's part of our revenue model, too. So everything we've looked at so far would just result in, at least in my opinion, payment processing fees that are prohibitively high. And the other concern for a company like us is we've built all of our own UI around signup forms and whatnot. If we go with one of these third party merchant of records, you almost definitely have to use their own UI on the front end. So we'd have kind of two different implementation paths for our product, one focused on Stripe, one focused on, you know, whatever merchant of record solution we integrate with. Long story short, we haven't found an option that we think is really viable and a good solution for our customers yet. So you wrote this post, which I'm doing a word count on it as we speak. It's a lot. It's what, four, more than 4,000 words. It's like a book chapter. It is. It must have taken you a lot of time. Why did why did you do it? Other than just to be a nice person and help the internet and help SaaS companies, was there other motivation? I wouldn't say there was any particular motivation other than trying to bring sense to this topic for our customers. Um, I mean, our support inbox is filled with people asking questions. Do I need to worry about this? Do I not need to worry about this? And and frankly, like we wanted our own customers to know we've been looking into this. We've been exploring it from all angles. My own perspectives have changed on this topic. When I really all of 2020, uh, 2022, I was talking to our product team saying, I think we need to be a merchant of record. We sell to early stage companies. Let's just take this topic off their plate completely. But the further I went down this path, the more founders I spoke to, the more I actually started kind of backtracking on that perspective. And I just wanted to share everything I'd, I'd learned on the topic and also communicate that I think ideally for a payment processing company like us, offering both options and giving your customers uh, that level of optionality is the best solution. And something you say in the, the article is, if you're a SaaS company that's just starting out, 
I would act as my own merchant or record. In fact, I wouldn't worry about global sales tax remittance at all yet, which I think ties into what we said earlier of like, hey, if you're, yep. if you're trying to get to 10, 20K, quit the job. Again, not advice because you should be 100% compliant with all laws at all time. And, you know, but it's like realistically, that's just how it works. But what's funny is, you know, you have, you have this really nice diagram and it says the question of, of merchant record using a merchant record pros and cons. The only pro is convenience. That's it. There's one. It's because it's more convenient. The cons are slower approval process, customer confusion. You want to define that or why customers could be confused? Yeah. So customer confusion, I think it's one of those things you're going to see a lot of initially with new customers if you are using a third-party merchant of record. So if a customer looks at their bank statement and you are buying a product from a company that uses a third-party merchant of record, they're not going to see the company's name on their bank statement. They're going to see Paddle, or they're going to see Gumroad, or they're going to see Lemon Squeezy, the name of the the third-party merchant of record. And a lot of times that causes customers to kind of freak out and say, why am I getting charged by this business I have no relationship with? All these companies have addressed this in, in various ways. It's something I think once you receive an invoice and are confused, you probably figure it out and it's not that big of a deal, but it is certainly something to consider. That makes sense. And then the other cons are significantly higher platform risk, which is pretty obvious. Imagine if your merchant or record went under, that yep. would be devastating. And then high payment processing fees. Then you you have a nice headline, I, I think kind of a nice summary of it. You're like, you say, if you're just starting out, I wouldn't worry about it yet. If I was a creator that sells one-time fee digital products, I would recommend using a merchant or record. I can live with an f- extra 5% fee once, but I don't want to live with it on an ongoing basis. And then you say, if I'm a SaaS company doing over a million a year, I would act as my own merchant record, which makes a lot of sense to me because, again, it's SaaS, and so you're getting all that recurring revenue and figuring it out is probably worth your time. How should then should you deal with the global sales tax remittance? Because it sounds like it's a big freaking fiasco to, to figure out. Are, is like I've heard of like Stripe sales tax or Stripe tax or something, and there's some other, is that the kind of thing you would do? Yeah, what I personally think is the best option and what we're going to do in the context of our own business and also probably the first thing we'll productize for our customers is I do think Stripe Tax has solved this better than anybody else when it comes to tracking the actual tax that you owe. And Stripe Tax will also tell you specifically what jurisdictions you need to remit taxes in. So if there's a particular um, sales threshold in a given country and you're over that threshold, Stripe Tax notifies you. It says you've sold 50K worth of product in this jurisdiction. You need to remit taxes there. So I think the first step for any company is just going to be turning on Stripe Tax. That's what I'd recommend at least. So you at least have insight into where you owe taxes and you are starting to collect taxes as well. The problem then becomes remittance, which is actually filing your taxes with all of these different countries, different geographies, et cetera. Stripe does have um, some partners that they recommend. They have um, tax jars, their partner in the US. There's a couple options in, in Asia, a couple options in Europe that they recommend. But for me, it's turn on Stripe tax, start collecting tax, And then I would start to gradually remit taxes in any jurisdiction where I'm really processing significant volume. I would probably start in my home country. For most companies, I think you'll probably go to Europe next. That's kind of a a guess, but I would sort of do it incrementally. And over time, you know, if you have a $50 million a year business, yeah, you're probably going to be remitting taxes all over the place. But the cost of remitting these taxes doesn't scale up dramatically. And that's why I'm uncomfortable saying, 
I'm going to pay 7 or 10% or whatever it might be in perpetuity on every single recurring transaction, I would rather optimize for the lower payment processing fees and then just remit taxes as it sort of makes sensible sense to do so. I can imagine someone doing a million or two million in ARR or even five million. It's just still just such a small business compared to the world. And they're domiciled in... California, you know, their California LLC or whatever, or an Oregon LLC, and they have some customers in Europe, and it shows by their calculations that they owe five or ten thousand dollars in taxes to to England or the UK or whatever. I can imagine someone thinking, "I'm not going to pay these. What are they going to do? Come after me?" But is that a sensible way to think about it? Or is it if you go over there, they scan your passport, and then they're like, "Ha ha, we got you!" Like how <laughs> how does a European government come and get a American small business. Yeah, so I, I would say um, one of my other learnings as I've explored this topic is I was not able to find a single person who had a horror story about a foreign government coming after them for some sort of sales tax that they did not remit. Now, does that mean that you should not remit those taxes? No, I'm not. I'm not advocating for that whatsoever. I, I think you probably should try to do the right thing, but I think from a sort of risk assessment standpoint, part of the reason small businesses like us are being asked to collect collect these taxes in the first place is these governments haven't figured out how to do it on their own in any sort of scalable fashion. I don't think there's any great way that this is consistently sort of enforced. So I, I'm not saying don't do it. I'm saying use your own common sense when you think that number is large enough that it makes sense to be remitting tax in these jurisdictions permanently, start to do so. Before that, I think your your actual risk is extremely low. Yeah, I can imagine the risk may increase someday. Don't know, right? Some countries may get their act together and do it. Yep. The other thing is, I haven't heard this either, but I could imagine if you went to raise a funding round or sell a company, that depending on who was investing or who was acquiring and how much money was involved, there would could potentially be a liability there. And my guess is it wouldn't scuttle an acquisition, but it might be a you know, holdback type situation. You know, when you sell a company for $10 million, usually, I forget what the number is, if it's 10 or 15% of that amount is like held back for 18 months, two years, just in case something happens. And I can imagine, you know, that that might be something people would think about. Yeah, it's a concern that I hear all the time. Uh, probably the number one case for a merchant of record that I've heard, at least from people that are kind of freaked out about this topic, is what if there is an acquisition of my business someday and I haven't done this? Is that going to, to kill the deal? Um, and I think that's it, it could certainly happen. Uh, I will say in the context of writing this article, I talked to a founder who sold a business for between $500 million and a billion dollars. So a big acquisition to a publicly traded company. They just disclosed during the acquisition that they had never paid global sales tax and they didn't know how the acquiring party was going to react to that. And they were sort of surprised. The acquiring party almost laughed it off and said to them, we would have been really surprised if you had paid global sales tax. And maybe that's going to change a little bit over the years to, to your point, but I think that's very much the, the norm. And if someone is trying to kill a deal over this, they're probably not like that serious about acquiring your company anyways. It's not where the market is today. Yeah. Well, cool. If folks want to check out the post, obviously we'll link it up in the show notes or they can go to outseta.com slash blog to see it. Before we wrap up though, I want to hear a little more about Outseta. Like, so you're bootstrapped, how long you've been in business, how, you know, how many founders, how big's the team, some idea of scale? 
First of all, yes, you're 100% correct. It is membership software. Um, we use membership software as a little bit of a broad catch-all because our target market has switched a little bit. But we set out to build an all-in-one tech stack for SaaS founders building SaaS companies. Uh, we sort of built Stripe billing before Stripe billing was a thing. And then we said, you know what? All these SaaS founders need authentication and CRM and transactional emails and the basic premise of the company is it's just all the kind of table stakes functionality that you need to launch a SaaS business. And we also sell to less technical founders building membership sites that need comparable functionality today. But we've been at it for six years now. Um, we're 100% bootstrapped. There are three founders and six people on the team at this point. Wow. Good for you guys. Are you, did you get any type of COVID bump when that happened? And how have, how's it been going since then in terms of growth and traction? Yeah, it's been interesting. We actually did um, get a little bit of a COVID bump. Um, as everybody started getting laid off, everybody started launching their own companies and outside of sort of a, an expensive way to do, to do that. So we actually grew, we really started to grow in earnest kind of through COVID and I would say since then, um, just in the last few months, in terms of new customer signups, we've definitely felt the economy a little bit. We're still we're still trending up and to the right, but our growth in terms of new customers has slowed a little bit the last few months. But what we've seen is our real revenue model is we take a 1% fee on successfully processed transactions. So as our customers grow, we grow. And we've been growing pretty aggressively over the last year, really based on the growth of our customers, uh, more so than new customer signups, which is pretty cool. Yeah, that's interesting because when I went to the homepage the first time, it says all in member membership software. And I was thinking, oh, this is for membership websites, you know, the information marketer, the knowledge marketer who has a personal brand selling. But then your H2 talks about monetize your website, your SaaS product, or your online community. And right, so there's more to it. And you have billing. You have CRM, you have email automations, like you said, you have help desk, so you have some type of support and authentication. So there's quite a bit here. Yeah, we, we have an interesting marketing challenge in the sense that our customer base is roughly split between very technical founders building SaaS companies and no coders building membership websites. They all need CRM, they all need billing, they all need authentication, they're sort of you know, controlling access to their feature sets or their content based on your subscription. So they're actually very similar, but how we speak to them and even the implementation process is quite different uh, between, those, between those two target markets. But for SaaS founders, the thing that tends to get them, interestingly enough, is not that your billing system and your email tools and your CRM is integrated. They've got the technical skill set to integrate, you know, best in class point solutions if they want to. It's more all these little workflows that you typically need to write custom code on top of Stripe to support. So things like if a subscription payment fails, do you want to lock the user out of their account and prompt them to update their payment information on login? Those are little workflows that we've built into Outsetto so you don't need to code this stuff yourself. And because we offer both authentication and billing, you know, it all just kind of works out of the box for you. You have a, a neat little Twitter thread on uh, outsetto.com slash billing, and it's Derek Reimer asking SaaS developers, what was your last experience like integrating Stripe billing with your app? And then Ruben Gomez, who comes on this show all the time, annoying, sucks. We did this twice, two different apps in the last few months, standard SaaS tier and monthly yearly billing options. For all the hype about how easy it was, it took longer than it should have, and some parts were confusing. Then Ben Orenstein, friend of the pod, chimed in. I'd guess we've invested more than 100 hours, and we're definitely not done. So it, it is interesting, like... Like Stripe innovated, right? I mean, before Stripe, I used PayPal Web Payments Pro and freaking Authorize.net, and I hated both yep. of them, you know? <laughs> and so Stripe just did an amazing job there. And, and then they built 
Stripe billing and they built all this stuff, but it's still not there, you know? And I, it sounds like you're built, you're trying to build another layer on top of that. Yeah. There, there's two ways that people have described what we offer that I think are, are generally helpful. Um, the first one is it people will express a lot of frustration with Stripe because Stripe hasn't sort of built this end-to-end solution for a SaaS business. But frankly, Stripe is a payments company and they have a lot of focus outside of SaaS. So a lot of people will say Outseta is sort of the tech stack Stripe would build if Stripe just completely focused on SaaS. The other parallel we hear a lot is you are sort of Shopify for SaaS businesses. It's an easy way to get up and running. It gives you all the core tools that you need. You go on to build a $50 million business, you're probably going to want to integrate best-in-class tools and build sort of the picture-perfect tech stack, but we're more than enough to get you started. And really how we think about ourselves and from a design perspective, what we always keep in the back of our minds is we want to take SaaS companies from zero to somewhere between five and $10 million a year in revenue. We think we can support that that journey really, really well. And if you get beyond that point, you'll sort of outgrow Outseta. Very nice, sir. Folks want to keep up with you. You are Jeff T. Roberts on Twitter. It's G-E-O-F-F-T Roberts, as well as Outseta.com. And I wanted to thank you for being such a like an active participant in MicroConf Connect. I actually was telling you before this, the re- I hadn't read your post about global sales tax remittance, but someone in MicroConf Connect pulled it to my attention. They said this would be a great topic to hear on the podcast. And so thanks for writing the piece, essentially giving back to the community and uh, for being such a contributor to Connect. Yeah, thanks for having me today and uh, looking forward to seeing everybody in that community next week in Denver. Amazing. All right, sir. Thanks. Take care. Thanks again to Jeff for joining me today on the show. You can obviously read the article linked up in the show notes. I look forward to connecting with you on Twitter. I'm at Rob Walling. Thanks for listening this week and every week. This is Rob Walling signing off from episode 658.